Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, where we spin off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. What's up, everybody? So if you've been following us on YouTube, and you can check out our channel at youtube.com slash you'll notice that we've been doing a ton more video lately, and we have a ton more planned. And at the moment, a lot of those videos are coming off of my cameras. So I wanted to know, how can we do this better? How can we get better video quality? What settings are the right things to do? And how can we tell better stories? And of course, if you follow GoPro's YouTube channel and watch them on social, all the videos that they produce are insane, you know, great action, great cinematography, great audio, great music. So we figure, all right, if those are the gold standard, how can we get better at mimicking that so that our videos are better? And rather than try and figure it out the hard way, like most things, I like to go right to the source. So we invited Nick Mitzenmacher onto the show. He is the one that produces most of the cycling action footage videos that you see coming out of GoPro Studios. And he's going to run through all of the settings that he recommends, all the things that they do with their cameras, all the mounts and everything else, and give us a total run through of all the ways we can make better videos. Hey, Nick, thanks for coming on the Bike Rumor Show. Yeah, no problem. You are... I'm going to let you say the title because it was a long one. And real quick, describe what your job role is there at GoPro. And then I've got a million questions for you. Awesome. Yeah, so I'm a senior production artist over at GoPro. Um, and what that entails, I mean, it's a lot of things. But really, we help direct, create, edit um, all the footage that you see for various channels, whether it be um, ad-based content for... Um, sponsored Instagram posts or anywhere from like YouTube to Instagram, just basically daily posts that we're doing. So uh, my world um, specifically is in the outdoor space. So I do a lot of the biking, um, skydiving, kayak, uh, any of that stuff. But we do dive into skate, snow, surf, um, pretty much anything that you can wear a camera or uh, show your experience. Very cool. And when we were talking before we started recording, you said, hey, are we going to talk about road or mountain bike? And to be honest, like it, road had never even crossed my mind because all the videos we see for bike tend to be exciting mountain bike stuff, right? And uh, But how how much of a market is there for road GoPro video? Yeah, so we actually dove into road cycling pretty hard, I'd say four years ago, I think was the start of it. Um, we dove straight into Tour de France. That was like our first kind of like dive into except we, we tend to try to go for the big spaces right away. Um, and road cycling wasn't really known at that point. I mean, occasionally guys would stick cameras on bikes, but, um, I think we didn't really figure out what was good there yet. So they started testing kind of in, in the Peloton style racing. And I think that's something that you don't get to see when you see road racing, you, you know, you get the long lens, you get the helicopter. Um, but the second we got footage back from inside the Peloton and realize, you know, when you're on a five, five hour bike ride, trying to race, there's a lot of things that go on in the Peloton. So, you know, you'd see guys passing food around, you'd hear conversations. Um, and then over the years, it kind of just developed across the way. So, I mean, people like we, the crashes were really what people wanted to see. Like you don't normally get inside that. And, you know, with 150 guys on the road, it's, you know, it's bound to happen occasionally. 
originally, but you know, one specifically, I think it was two years ago or three years ago. I think it was Adam Yates. It was like the last kilometer and the, the banner fell on him and we had the only camera behind. It was like the support vehicle and every other camera was blacked out. And so when they got the footage back, they posted it and it went crazy viral just because of, you know, it's, it's an angle that you don't get to see and it's a camera that you forget was running more so because you're in the, in the action versus away from the action trying to record it. So I'd say like in that space, we definitely made an impact um, just because you're, you're getting an inside look to a sport. And I think that's a lot of sports nowadays is that, you know, people want to be inside the inside action because they've seen these long lenses for, you know, 60, 70 years that they've been watching sports so when they get a feel like they're the QB or they're, you know, Lance Armstrong or Chris Froome or whoever that may be, um, you know, it just gives that viewer like an excitement that they don't normally get. So, um, yeah, I'd say road cycling definitely has developed over the years. Um, like I said, we, we've, we've been in it for four years now, I think. And then, yeah, like two years ago, we did a whole 12 part series around it, um, kind of uncovering like behind the scenes of the tour, which is really cool that I got to be a part of. So, um, yeah, that space is a fun one for sure. It's a little slower than mountain bike, but I yeah, think I imagine you end up with just way more hours of footage to comb through <laughs> and find the highlights. Yeah, that was that was a huge problem because you definitely you definitely had to like let them run, and you know it's obviously you pray that you capture something, and obviously you don't pray they crash, but um, you know you wanted the high action or you wanted people to mess with cameras, and you always got that somewhere, but it just took yeah hours and hours of scrubbing footage to find <laughs> those moments, essentially. Yeah, and when you have those cameras on the bikes for that long, like how do you maintain battery life? How do you keep them running? Yeah, we actually had our team internally build some special software. Um, they actually have a booklet at the Tour de France that's like based on times of when they'll be somewhere, and crazy enough, they're oddly exact on those times like they may be a few minutes off depending on wind or you know crash may happen but we would actually so the the team built us this special software that we could um, turn the camera on at a certain time um, so we'd have cameras start at the beginning we'd have cameras start right before the sprint finish um, somewhere in the middle we just would figure out what the stage looked like and where it would be exciting the most and then we'd have about 15 to 20 cameras I think running a day so um special form were hacked but yeah we definitely would still pray at that point you know something's gonna happen right speaking of hacks then is that is there any way to hack the gopro operating system is within the camera if somebody wanted to try and do that sort of thing on their own nothing that i'm aware of um i think it took a while for them to figure it out we definitely went through a lot of a lot of different things that didn't work in the beginning so a little bit outside my world on that one but um we asked for it and our engineers came up with something which was cool so what i mainly wanted to talk to you about before we talk a little bit about the actual hardware itself just because there's um there's some really geeky questions i've got is how do we as the average person who buys a gopro at you know best buy or amazon or wherever or directly from you guys how do we capture and create the same level of video that we see coming out of your youtube channel where you're pumping out these videos that are just amazing you know there's because it seems like a vast chasm between the stuff that you know i create and what you guys create how what's i mean where do we even start like basic settings you know you've got with the new h7 the hero 7 you know the um i'm totally spacing on the name but the ability to steady cam it is unreal yeah and, so hyper, hyper smooth is definitely the one that sets apart 
Um, I think people haven't, they see it now and that, I mean, the footage, when you compare, like we, we have a hard time actually looking at older footage sometimes now that here, like uh, hyper smooths out. Um, but that definitely plays a huge factor into it. Um, I'd say for footage to look like ours, um, that's pretty much a huge one that we always tell people to turn on. I mean, our, our, the basic, I'd say go-to setting that I always tell people to shoot on from our side is um, the 2.7K 4360. And that is due to, that's the highest resolution you can get with HyperSmooth. And the 4.3 format, which isn't common in most filming capture devices, but what it does, if you think of 16 by 9, which is your standard filming, that's more of a rectangular perspective or that's just your normal TV look. When you think of 4.3, it's more of a square aspect. So in the post side of it, you actually are capturing more real estate in your footage on a top and a bottom. And being that our camera or our lens is a wide angle lens, um, it just gives you that extra perspective, especially when you know our cameras, our camera's definitely made to be a POV camera. Um, I think we've shown that it does, you know, obviously everything, but um, traditionally we're known as, you know, the point of view action camera and, and having that extra real estate when it's attached to your body, you want to be able to see, you know, your hands on a bike or your skis on your feet or any of that kind of stuff. So um, we, uh, I, I typically tell everybody shooting that because you can either crop in on the post side of stuff, meaning like it'll chop the top and bottom off, but you can shift that frame around depending on what you need to see. Or we, we have some um, post like plugins that we use that you can get called uh, Andy's Elastic. And what that will do is kind of stretch the footage. Um, there's also a mode in the camera called Super View, which does typically the same thing. So it takes 4.3 footage and it basically squishes it down and stretches it out to a 16 by 9 format. Um, and then does all the like algorithmic stuff in the middle to kind of make it look good. Um, Andy's elastic is basically just like a advanced version of that that you can kind of have more control of on the post end for your more advanced editor. Um, so there definitely is tweaks that you can do on the back end. And I think that's with any, any type of footage, um, you can always take it further than you want, but I'd say, you know, straight out of the camera for settings like that for people to capture is, is insane for especially, you know, a camera that's at about 400 bucks and shoots 4k footage and <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, and so then, so that four three, it, it's just adding top and bottom. It's not chopping left and right compared yeah, to a sixteen nine. Yeah, you're still shooting the the width. So on a two point seven k clip, or let's let's say fourteen forty. I think it's there's a fourteen forty mode too, which is a little bit lower resolution. That still shoots your same width, but you just get yeah more top and bottom real estate. So really, you're you're only gaining more essentially and then you have the ability to obviously crop that out in the end which is nice okay and then so why do we want 60 frames per second if most of the time at least for me like i'm exporting probably at 30 frames per second yep and that's most people i'd say our our standard timeline when we export and that's i think most footage on t on tv is either 24 or 30 um we shoot 60 just to have the ability to slow down um, obviously if you don't have it, <laughs> it sucks because sometimes you want to slow that action down, especially in high speed environments. Um, a benefit going down to 30 though is when there is low light. If you do go down to 30, you'll allow a little bit more light in there, um, which does help. So if you're at kind of like a dusk setting, you may want to shoot 30 over 60 cause your footage may be a little dark. And when you start to, you know, color up dark footage and make it a little brighter, you'll get cranier footage. Um, so it's kind of pros and cons to both as to kind of what you're trying to capture, but 
Um, we typically try to shoot everything in 60 just so we have that ability to have that slow motion slow it down 50% in the end. Is it going to look the end result if I were shooting, you know, all else being equal, a nice sunny day, is it going to look smoother when I, you know, the finished product, if I'm shooting in 60 versus 30 or once you export to 30, do you kind of lose anything? You don't, yeah, you don't typically lose anything. Looks about the same. It, you'll see a difference when you export like a 60 frames a second timeline versus a 30 second frames a timeline. Um, I think YouTube accepts that now, which when you look at it, yeah, it's going to look a little smoother because there's more frames per second, but it gives you more of like a raw feeling. Um, I think with those, like, there's like those new TVs. If you watch like a soap opera or a movie on like the 120 hertz, it feels like raw footage versus that kind of like glossy like standard look that you're normally seeing so um, i'd say most people see the 30 frames a second yeah if you're shooting in 60 or 120 or 240 frames a second our camera shoots um, you're not going to notice like anything smoother it's just more so on the slow motion side of things all right so the only reason to go up to the 120 or 240 is if you know that you're shooting something you want to end up slowing down yeah yeah and that's in and with our side we definitely shoot with a purpose when it comes to those um data rates get higher the camera obviously dies a little quicker because it's working harder those settings are definitely more data intensive um and i'd say like the 240 because it shoots at 1080 you have a lower resolution um so we try to keep you know the resolution as high as possible but if we need those specific shots whether it be you know dirt flying up or you know a race car getting really close to you know each other um you know, then we'll slow it down with a purpose, but typically we try to keep it at the highest resolution possible. All right. On. And then as far as you mentioned using 30 frames per second for low light, but you guys, there's a setting on the GoPro that is like automatically adjust for low light, right? Yeah. So if you have that on, basically what it does is if you, if you're shooting in 60 frames a second and let's say you enter a darker scenario, what it will do is actually force the camera down to 30 frames a second. Um, in which case then you'll lose the slow motion. You'll actually see that in an editor. It'll get a little choppy. Um, so that's where we just typically will lock off that frames a second so it doesn't happen. But for a basic user that's not necessarily going to go in and like tinker with a bunch of stuff, like that setting alone, it's basically they're just auto settings that can help, you know, a user straight out of the box. Um, they can, you know, it'll, it'll auto adjust that setting for you so that you don't have to worry about those kind of scenarios. How sensitive is it? You know, like I'm envisioning mountain biking. There's some trails around us where you're out in the field in broad daylight and then you duck into the trees. Like, is that, is that enough, just tree cover enough to trigger that drop down to 30 or does it have to really be like a dark hallway or something? I actually don't quite know where the threshold is all the way. A darker, yeah, I mean, it definitely like, I think a shaded tree area probably wouldn't trigger it. If it's like spotted lighting, if you're going into maybe like, let's say like it's a cloudier day and you're out kind of in the open and then you go into the trees, that may trigger it a little bit more. Um, but it's it does a pretty good job to stay at 60 for as much as possible. Um, I forgot if there's like a certain amount of stops it has to go in the exposure. <clears throat> Excuse me for um for it to actually trigger itself. But yeah, I don't know exactly where that threshold exists for it to trigger over all right for most people that you think that just leaving on auto low light setting is uh probably the best option yeah like, like i said we we try to keep it off just because we we typically like to do the slow motion and, and it'll be the same within like if say you're using quick and you did want to slow it down 
having that ability to slow it down is great. You can always, you know, bump up exposure in the in the back end, and it's usually not a ton that you're gonna have to bump up the exposure. So, personally, I would keep it at 60 frames a second. But if it's somebody that you know just does not know tech at all and just wants to be able to shoot the camera and go have fun, I'd say yeah, leaving that setting on is is gonna be your go-to for sure. Okay. What about the the HDR like that GoPro color? option is that do you guys use that or are you more getting into the total manual white balance and all those controls you're talking on the photo or the video side uh video side video side there's no hdr there's like a color I, yeah i'm getting the name wrong but there is like a gopro color setting right uh, GoPro color versus yeah flat okay um yeah we i mean it's pros and cons like on our side just the more advanced side we go back and forth. There's a lot of guys that like to shoot on color. There's a lot of guys that like to shoot on flat. All flat does really is gives you more ability on the post side to color up how you want to. But honestly, GoPro Color to me does an amazing job. Um, I typically just leave it on there because it pulls really, really good color, especially with the seven, like the bump up to this one. Each year, they just like keep making it better. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I would leave that one on. <laughs> and is it just, um, yeah, it does look really, really good. I know with flat, I feel like to be able to use the flat setting, you really need to know what you're doing in post because it's pretty easy to either mess it up or like oversaturate, you know, the red or the blue or the green or some combination thereof and get it just where it might look good compared to what it was at flat. But then when you actually like go back and watch it later, you're like, oh, what the hell is this? <laughs> yeah. I'd say the one tip too, yeah, if you're working with like multiple cameras and we do this occasionally too, like we'll have some cameras on flat, some cameras on color just to kind of make sure everything's in the same. That way on the post side, it's a little easier when you're obviously coloring if you're doing flat or if it's GoPro color, then everything's obviously going to look the same because you're in the same setting, which is nice. Right on. Yeah, that's a good call. I guess if you can afford or have a need for more than one camera, run it both yeah. ways and use one as a baseline. Cool. Um, what are some of the other kind of low-hanging fruit just in terms of settings that most people can do? And is there a difference between what they would should do for mountain bike versus road bike? Yeah, so I say the the one thing that we always tell people, so there there's a ProTune setting, and that's where you're getting into this GoPro Color Flat option. Um, out of the box, it will come off. And what this ProTune setting does is basically ups the data rate, which means two things one it's opening some advanced settings for you where you can lock off exposure you can make you know your iso um parameters different so that if if it does need more light you can add more light you know electronically um but yeah also what it's doing is what i said is adding data rate so it's actually giving you a little bit better color overall it's giving you more like of a wider dynamic range for the camera to look at um it eats up a little bit more of your card because obviously it's more data coming into it. Um, but what the, what the protein setting does. And like I said, I, we tell everybody to turn it on just because it, it gives you that extra boost of what you need to make the footage look even better than it does before is, um, it opens up a lot of different, you know, options. So it like GoPro color is one of them. So you can either shoot GoPro color flat. Um, there's an ISO option, which basically is, it's artificial light being entered in. So let's say you do want to shoot in 60, um, but you're entering more of a little bit darker scenario. You may want to bump that ISO max up to like 800. And what that will do is if it, if it does enter a dark scenario, it'll add electronic light. But your payoff is that, or your, your downside is that you get a bit more grain in your footage. 
some people are okay with that. And I'd say our camera does pretty good up until like 1600. Um, and then past that, you'll definitely start to see it pretty bad. But there's there's tons of programs out there that can do noise footage um, that helps too. And then you have, you know, a wide variety of like mic settings. Um, there's a mode that's basically this camera, the audio will switch between um, if it's a windy scenario, it'll actually kind of like do its own thing internally to kind of still block the audio out for the wind and still listen for audio. So there's there's like a mode you can turn that off and on if you want. Um, if you're just looking for stereo audio or mono audio, um, yeah, I mean, really, it's the options are kind of more endless on that side because it gives you like more advanced things to do. But really, the biggest thing is that it gives you that bigger data rate, a wider high, like dynamic range for your colors to come out, and then just on the post side, it just yeah, we we typically always shoot that just because of the advanced settings. Cool. Yeah, I've got some audio questions I want to talk to you about, but I'm going to stick with the the video, the visual side of it for a second. Just for yep. people who don't understand ISO and white balance. Um, my understanding is with white balance, there's actually like you're changing the way it sees the hue. So you can go, for, you can add like coolness or warmth to the kind of the overall tone. So it's not like, it almost doesn't sound like it has anything to do with white, but maybe you can describe that better than me. Like, and when somebody might want to go one way or the other on that spectrum. And then same with ISO, like the higher the ISO number, it's whether it's digital or physical, it's. The, you know, basically letting more light in, but to be able to do that, you, you know, like you said, the trade-off is it's going to get grainier and grainier the higher the ISO is. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the way the way white balance basically works is you're ca you're almost counteracting what the camera's seeing. So let's say you are in maybe a sunsetty type area, or let's say cloudy sky you would go a higher Kelvin. So that's where our, our white balance works in. You're basically counteracting that. Um, wait, I'm trying to think. Maybe I'm getting this wrong. <laughs> you're basically just trying to like, if, you're, if your footage is looking too yellow, you're going to obviously go cooler in the camera so that it balances that middle ground. Um, I would honestly say, though, for the most part, we leave it on auto just because the camera does a really good job of keeping that, center point or that balance between you know what the what the outside looks like and then what the camera's reading to like balance it out because there are times when you know we've left them on and it's been cloudy out and then all of a sudden our footage is very blue because we were counteracting from the day before on like more of a sunset shoot to balance it um if that makes sense i'm i don't know if i'm explaining that quite correct but yeah you're and i think to, people can kind of like just mess with like hold it outside and mess with the settings and they'll see what happens too but um yeah I, I agree with you there's there's a lot of room for error when you forget what you had it on the day before or or something else and then it looks like either smurf village or the opposite um and you'll see it you'll see it instantly in the camera and that's that's like one of the good things is having that back back lcd is that the second you slide that to let's say you know 3300 kelvin you're going to see the difference in the footage right away um and, and to get it to what you are and, and you know the advanced side of it is you have like a white there's like a, a color board that you hold up that shows true white basically um and you can balance that out but for the the average viewer like i said the auto the auto setting is really we keep it on there a lot of times just because you know our cameras are, are moving in and out of scenarios so quickly that you know we just sometimes just want it to do its own thing and it does a really good job at it cool and then iso like you said uh 
You one of the things you said was you know like sometimes you can bump it up to eight hundred, which you know compared to what these things are capable of going to at least on paper seems low. But is eight hundred or four hundred like what's the best kind of like middle ground? Or again, should people just leave that on auto? Yeah, we we go. I think so. There when you when you do the the protein setting, you'll get this ISO min and ISO max. So basically, what you're doing is setting perimeters or parameters. Um, and it'll stay at the lowest setting possible because obviously you don't want that grain. The second you do enter, like I said, so there's two ways to get you know more light into the camera. One being um, lowering your frames per second. That is obviously lets more light in because it's it's opening the shutter for longer periods of time. Um, and then there's just ISO, which is basically like an artificial light coming in, and that's where you get the grain because it's adding artificial pixels in there. Um, but basically, I think our settings we go through is uh, ISO min 100 and then the max about 800. And the 800 is kind of like I said, the threshold of like what you'll see, like no grain really. 1600 is kind of that bump up from there that you'll start to see some grain. And you'll probably need some denoiser on there. Um, but like I said, it's really, really in the end when you're shooting footage, it's more about the story than anything so if you can get away with some grain it's not the most you know the worst thing especially if you're being able to capture something that you know maybe is crucial to your story or crucial to what you're trying to show um but i'd say yeah 100 to 800 is kind of like your your really good threshold to stay in between and like i said also that the the camera will do a great job to keep that as low as possible but use those parameters to kind of work in when needed essentially right cool all right well let's the story side of it sounds to me like that maybe that's where a lot of your job role is is taking all this footage from people so let's touch audio real quick and then we'll get into like how we go from a whole bunch of footage on a memory stick to actually producing something worth watching um, yeah audio side of it when you guys are out recording uh, you know, you mentioned the wind noise thing and I've had some pretty mixed success with that, especially like, you know, we were using them for a while. Watts and I were just recording videos of us kind of recapping a race or something on a particularly windy day. And there was a lot of ducking going on that, you know, after the fact, when I got it in, I'm like, Oh man, there's no way to fix that. Yeah. Um, but granted, I think to me, probably the intended use for that is really when you're moving quickly, whether it's on a bike or a boat or whatever, to block that wind noise and still be able to capture some of the ambient noise. But how, uh, what's the setup you guys use when you're shooting something professionally? Are you using the built-in mic or using the mic adapter and something external? Yeah, I think it just depends on the scenario. Most of the time we're just letting the camera do its thing. Um, like you said, there is ducking that occurs occasionally. It depends on how windy it is and the way it hits the camera. And I mean, there's so many variables of sound like, I think a lot of people think that sound just happens really good all the time. And that's definitely not the case. I mean, if you look at full on movies, they don't record sound all out of the camera. They're making most of their sound effects on the back end. I think a lot of people don't realize. And so when they do see those like behind the scenes, they're like blown away. Like transformers is a really good example. I mean, they're making pretty much like majority of that sound on the back end of stuff. Um, but I'd say on, on our side, you know, a lot of times we're just letting the camera do what it does best um we typically shoot in stereo a lot um so there's stereo and wind that's the two settings in that pro tune um the wind is like you said it it can have its downsides occasionally um, but it does a pretty good job overall in high extreme environments sometimes it does have occasional blips here and there that we've noticed so we shoot in stereo just in case 
and then we we typically will run actually a secondary camera um it just like i said it depends on kind of the scenario of what you're trying to do because you can't always fit an external mic um in places that our camera goes obviously you know a bike rider is not going to want to wear a huge external mic on his chest to get the best audio possible um so we just kind of use those ambient sounds and then there is ways to you know obviously get better sounds um we've done anywhere from like cooking lav mics to the back of bikes to get that like raw audio sound where wind's not going to actually hit it um to you know interviews we'll hook up um recorders so we'll have actually two areas we'll go for like interviews we'll do our camera hooked with a it's called we call it a dong i mean people are known as dongles but there's an audio accessory that can hook up you know any road mic or any type of shotgun mic to it to achieve better sound um you know our cameras i'm, I'm not all the way into audio but i think our camera is omnidirectional is that correct as far as i can tell yeah like there's it it seems very omnidirectional i'm looking at one now and there's you know there's what i'm guessing are mic ports on bottom and side so yeah. i'm not seeing them on all sides but yeah it, it does seem like it picks it up pretty much from any direction well i just making sure i got that the lingo right but yeah so our camera shoot, you know it's, it's recording everything around it um when we do interviews we're, we're hooking up shotgun mics that way it's you know pointed more directed at the actual subject itself um same with lav mics like it's it's capturing more like if we're sticking that dongle on the camera we're attaching it to the bike and then using that you know mic to go behind maybe the frame that it's not going to capture the wind um we use that sometimes to capture the raw audio of the bike as well so there's different scenarios where you're trying to capture different things we've also done a lot of like back-end um sound effects work too to kind of you know we have a, a huge library of sound effects music um, we'll go out and record our own things if it, you know, if it doesn't sound good. Um, there's a cage like with any capture device, I think you're going to have times where, you know, maybe something isn't correct in the wind or maybe a bird's chirping too loud that you can't use that footage for and you need something more clean. So um, there's definitely ways around it. But I'd say for the most part, for the average consumer, um, what the camera does itself is great for anybody looking to maybe do like vlogging with it or you know getting that step up i think you know adding a shotgun mic to the camera with like a cage support um with like a hot shoe mount that's going to give you better audio even because it's directed towards you know obviously the subject itself when you're pointing back at you um and then beyond that you know it's really just how deep do you really want to go in sound? I mean, it's the same as video. You can go as deep as you want and sound is the same thing. I think you can, you know, we go and try to find ways to make that sound more rich, even though a lot of people are watching it in their phones and probably don't even hear it. There's a lot of times I think if you throw some headphones on, you'd, you'd be surprised at how deep of sound we go into some of the videos and, and these little light quirks. Um, there's actually a, a guy that I think it's, like one of his like every edit he makes he has like a bird chirping sound secretly <laughs> in the video so we always try to listen for it but you typically won't hear it if you're you know you're hearing on like a phone speaker but if you throw some headphones on there's you know there's some deeper sound effects that really bring you into a story um that can just make you feel more like you're there versus just like ambient audio that you're capturing from you know a, a wider ranged mic essentially yeah i think listener viewers are going to be more forgiving of weird noise if it's just the action noise and the ambient noise as opposed to speaking. I know like we've gotten uh, 
some people complaining in the comments on some of the videos we've done where admittedly the audio of me or whoever it was speaking was pretty bad. So we've done a lot to try and fix that with different mics and setups. But yeah, I don't, I don't get other than like, if you just have totally obnoxious wind noise, I don't think it's <laughs> as big a deal if you're, you know, the action noise isn't like super dialed. Um, yeah. That reminded me though of, of one visual thing that I wanted to point out because I think it's something I've done it once, even though I knew about it. And afterwards, I was like, damn it, that footage is almost unusable. Is with the Hyper Smooth, it works great for normal action, but there's one instance, and you can hopefully elaborate on this, where if you're trying to just do a slow pan of something, do not use Hyper Smooth because it'll want to like keep what's in the center in the center and then it'll jump. And then, you know, like as you keep panning, it'll like jump to get something else in the center and hold it. And it's really weird. Yeah, I think. I want to say they. I know they know that's a that was a problem. I think on launch. I want to say the the latest firmware fixed that issue, um, from what I remember. So if you haven't updated your camera, I'd say update it to the latest firmware. Um, cool. I know. I know they know it's a problem. They they saw it was a problem right off the bat, and they addressed it pretty quickly within firmware updates, from what I remember at least. Okay. And if somebody wants to update the firmware in theirs, is the best way going through the phone app or actually like plugging it into your computer? Or? Yeah, fastest would be through the phone, like the actual GoPro app. And then if for whatever reason that's not working, I think it's gopro.com slash update. Um, and then all that will do, just ask you, I think for a serial number, you just toss your card in and load the update to there and then pop it back in your camera. So one more question on audio. Instead of relying purely on the electronic wind noise reduction feature built into the camera, do you guys ever use the little stick-on dead cat furry patches that people tape over the mic ports on the camera? We have not used those. We um, we used to have a wind sock that went over the, I think it was the four, but it actually works for the seven because we've used them before. So like I said, I think it's really in a high, very high wind environment. Mountain bike can be used actually great for this. Like let's say they are just flying through a section or maybe it is a little windier. Um, we have used that wind sock over the top of it. Definitely makes the camera look a little uglier. <laughs> is that that? It's, it's like a giant foam cube that goes over it, right? Is that the yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, people are still using it for sure. <laughs> yeah, they definitely use them. Um, and it's really just scenario. Um, I'd say, that, like I said, the camera does a pretty decent job without it, especially if you don't want to carry like a ton of different accessories. Um, if you're just trying to get really quick on the go and have it, that that switch will work, you know, between the wind and, and I think it's stereo however it does the membrane section of it um, but having that is just an added extra to it that if you need it um, it's obviously going to muffle the sound a bit more on just like regular like you have to talk a little bit louder for for regular audio but for like capturing that ambient like mountain bike noise because it's right next to it and it's cutting some of that wind down it definitely does help um yeah it, it, it's like any audio stuff though you know the more you add to it the deeper your sound gets and you know, you're going to have better audio, but out of the camera, straight out of the camera for an average user, I'd say the audio does a really good job of, you know, trying to capture what you need for, for sports in general. All right, well, let's talk about storytelling. So once you get all this footage from your people in the field and your pro athletes and, you know, sponsored people, what's the first step? Like, are, or does this first step begin before they even start shooting? Like, are you sending your athletes out with kind of a storyboard or, do you just take whatever they send you and then try and create a story from that? Yeah, I think it's twofold. So we we actually go out and shoot a lot of 
projects. So those are like our original productions. And then I'd say majority of content, yeah, we either get from athletes or we actually get from users themselves through our rewards portal, which is really cool. Um, and that's actually where I started was like through the user generated content. So it's cool to see how much that's, you know, grown over the years. Um, but yeah, when we get footage in, I guess we could start with like user generated slash athlete generated content. Um, typically we'll either see something on their channels or they'll let us know they're going on a trip or let's say user generated content is obviously we see it on the web and we're really excited about it or they send it through our awards portal for maybe like a, a let's say a scuba diving competition or a mountain bike competition. Um, our steps that, you know, reach out via either our like vertical marketing managers or we'll reach out through our awards portal for the content. And then it just depends on kind of what we want to do with the content. Um, we've done, you know, we do anything from raw footage, which is just as powerful of a story, you know, as an edit is sometimes just depending on what the footage actually has in it. Um, but let's say it is an edit, for instance, um, if we see it and we do like it, occasionally we'll bring it in house and we'll actually throw together our own version of that. Um, or we'll work with the athletes to kind of tweak and figure out what we need to change to make it kind of fit to our like brand identity in some ways. Um, and a lot of times it's really music is a big one and like the, the pacing of edits. Um, a lot of athletes will throw, you know, Eminem on their, on their videos. And obviously we don't have rights to Eminem. <laughs> so we have, we have like a huge, a huge music library that we actually have a music team that reaches out to, you know, um, a wide variety of artists out there and they get paid per track usage, which is really cool. Um, so we just get this like curated, GoPro sound that we want to go after, whether it be, you know, I mean, the, the library is as big as you want it to be, you know, country to folk to cinematic to, you know, dubstep to, you know, anything you want, our music guys can kind of go try to get for us or figure out, you know, what's going to work with the brand. Um, so yeah, once we get footage in, it's kind of like sort it and then figure out what that story may be. Um, and then we kind of go into the the trenches from there and, and start working on something um, with, you know, a lot of it too is figuring out where maybe that content's going to live. You know, Instagram is obviously only 60 seconds. So you have to tell your story in a little quicker format. Um, YouTube is obviously catered more to the longer form uh, content. So occasionally we'll make content longer and usually like our content will go to all the channels. So we usually make different cuts for every single one of those. So if you know, it's one video, there's maybe, five different cuts that are being made <laughs> and they all feel a little different. So it's really just like, you got to figure out, yeah, what content's there and what exists and then figure out what that like overall story is. And I guess you kind of figure that out based on, you know, what your, what your end, end game is. If you're trying to cater it to a certain, you know, style of person or a, a niche market, or if you're trying to cater it to more variety or you just want something quick and powerful, um, that's where I mentioned like the raw, the raw stuff. And that's where mountain bike stuff actually does really well. Um, people just like the, the UCI like races that are 10 minutes long. I mean, some of those videos get millions of views just for people just wanting to sit in that POV and watch these people go, you know, 30 miles an hour down like this rocky rutted, like run that you just are you're white knuckled the whole time trying to figure out how the heck they're doing it <laughs> yeah yeah this stuff is mind-blowing and it's almost scary to watch some of it it is <laughs> yeah um 
Well, real quick question on that. Like when you see the people blowing through, I've noticed it seems to change your perception of speed as a viewer, depending on how wide the angle is. When you guys want to create something that makes it look like you're really going fast, are you setting it on a narrower angle or the widest possible angle? We typically keep the widest possible angle. Um, I think we talked a little bit about it before. Having it on your body, you're obviously very close to the handlebars, and that's where our lens does really well, is that in shooting in that 4-3 format, it's giving that little extra real estate. And then, you know, having it on your body, you want that wide angle because you want to be able to see the hands, you know, working and the hyper smooth, you know. Hyper smooth kicks in a lot of times and just makes everything look so smooth, but I think you really just want you want to be able to see everything that they're seeing through their perspective, whether it be on their head, their chest, the bike itself. Um, you just need kind of that wider aspect. I think if you're punched in, you start to lose some of that a little bit. And, and that's where people, you know, it, it just feels weird to be like too zoomed in when you're looking through a point of view. Um, you obviously can use those, you know, punched in views from maybe a third person's perspective because you need to get a little bit closer to the action. Um, and that's where I think a lot of people struggle with our cameras that they see it as this like action camera and our camera does actually do pretty well outside of that realm. And you can see it on our channel. You know, there's a lot of stories we tell and there are a lot of people that are like, no way that's all GoPro. And you know, it's, we maybe had two or three videos on our channel that, that have had non GoPro footage and that's more based because we wanted to tell the story and there was, you know, it was like 90% GoPro and maybe like. 10% red for the interviews, but really like those ones were just bigger stories, but I'd say, you know, majority of people don't really understand that our camera can shoot really well in all aspects. Um, I'd say the only one maybe it lacks in is like really long lens stuff, um, where you're like, you know, 700 meters away from the action. And obviously our camera is not going to, not going to be there for that, but you know, maybe it's from there, it's the perspective of the fan instead of, instead of the actual sport itself. So, I think soccer is a good one. We've covered soccer, um, a couple of the pro teams before and giving that viewer, like when you're telling the story, you know, it's not always just about the action on the field, you know, in soccer, there's tons of stuff going on in the stands. There's rowdy fans, there's drums up there. Um, you know, you, if you put a POV on that guy banging the drum around for like five seconds, it just adds to that, like kind of environment. Same with mountain biking. I think too, you know, you could walk through a UCI event and have it on maybe there. I mean, I think it's at Whistler. There's the, the one race where the dude has the chainsaw in that one section, like putting a camera at the end of that chainsaw when he's like ripping it and maybe seeing the rider in the background, that just gives you that like little extra action that you get to like break up that scenario. If you're trying to kind of tell the story, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's like what we just, and most people call B roll, right? Like you're always trying to figure out this extra stuff. And that's, you know, it's something we've learned to do better at. And even still, I get back and I'm thinking, man, I've got so much B-roll. This is going to be amazing. And then I'm like constantly wishing I had more stuff to just right. round out that story. How much, when you guys go out to do a specific shoot, I'll just use mountain biking as an example. Let's see, you're going out to shoot, you know, one of your pros doing a, a downhill run, right? Like, let's say it takes you know, a couple of point of view runs and then maybe you're doing some from the sidelines, just getting them going by like a particular techie section, you know, especially like, I love that, like low, low angle, um, the tires going by and just like shooting dirt or something. There's that. And then that, that stuff alone can take, you know, three, four hours to capture enough just 
ride footage, how much more time are you spending capturing all that other stuff? You know, the maybe just like panning through the trees or walking a section or showing the crowd or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, it's really the more time the merrier. <laughs> like you said, you always want more footage, but uh, I mean, we end up with so much footage a lot of times. So it's really your your end game is really where you got to look for it. Like, you know, if you're only trying to tell 60 seconds, then you maybe don't need as much and you're more focused on, you know, shooting with more of an intent and purpose for certain sections. Um, if you're trying to tell like a wider story, then, you know, obviously you're trying to figure out, do I need to tell, you know, that person's story inside his booth working on, you know, the bike all the way to like, maybe it's the lead up to the race or maybe it's, you know, uh, we did a story on Rachel Atherton when she did her like, I think it was like 13 straight wins. It was the perfect season. She won every single, every single race from that season, which was insane. And she basically took the camera around, did track walks at every track, um, you know, had her POV running every single race when she won. And then basically what we did was just take all that footage, look through it and see what story was there. And obviously there was something there because we had every race plus the B roll of her, like track walking, working out. Maybe there was like a section of her, like, vacationing in Spain or wherever they are at for like, you know, to, to free your mind a little bit. And then we just added, you know, interview stuff on top of that to kind of get the insight because she's probably not thinking that on site while she's, you know, while she's at the races. But after the fact, you could always fill in that story um, with interviews to kind of see what, you know, what was going through your head at each race. And, and why did you go, you know, jump in the ocean here? Like, shouldn't you be focusing on racing instead? But, you know, there's, there's, so many aspects of telling a story that, you know, you can go as little as you want and you can go as, you know, deep as you want, really. <laughs> yeah. And voiceovers make it easy to kind of add some of that storyline after the fact. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Hey, I just wanted to add on audio for people wondering, like for the bike room videos, the the background music, we get all that from audiohero.com, which is not paid to say in any way. It's just, it's a pretty cool resource because there's literally like tens of thousands of music tracks of every genre you could want. I don't know if you guys have checked that out, but it's pretty awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely have to, we have a few libraries, but yeah, we're always looking for new ones. So yeah. That great. was good. Um, cool. Well, so that was, uh, unless there's something else you want to add, I feel like that's the missing link for a lot of people is, you know, you got all this footage and then like, what is the story going to tell? And for us, it's, we're getting better and better about thinking about that story ahead of time so that when you're out there shooting, it's not just like, an afterthought it's you go out with a purpose and i think that would help a lot of people produce better videos just adding knowing what they want to accomplish ahead of time um and i, I like what you said about knowing you know where it's going and who the audience is too because you know the youtube stuff is longer i'm kind of curious what the videos you guys upload for youtube and stuff have you found a sweet spot in terms of length they, I mean, they do data on it all the time and it switches to be honest. Like we had one point where it was like 12 minute videos or 10, it was like 10 minute plus videos were like the hot thing. And then we've had it where it's like two to three minute videos. I think currently right now it's at like, I think it's four minutes plus or, or it's four minute, three to five minutes. Let me take it back. Three to five minutes, I think. And then it's like 12 minutes or 15 minutes plus or like oh. the hot spots. Uh, I think some of it has to do with the algorithm that YouTube runs a little bit, which that, I mean, any of those sites, they always change. So that, I think that's where like the change comes in, but I'd say for like a viewer, you know, everything's so quick nowadays. So the, the 40 to 50 second range is really like 
all people are like willing to accept a lot of times that's instagram obviously and then youtube i think you know like uh i feel like our yeah our sweet spots right around that like three minute mark i feel like people you have to really be able to like capture somebody in that first like 10 seconds i think that's something to add for story like if you don't capture them within the first like 10 to 20 seconds like they're out pretty quickly it has to be like you know whether it be a teaser or just something deep in the story that you just want to know more about um you know you'll lose them pretty quickly if you don't have that so that's that's something maybe to add you know just finding that that moment or something to grab the attention of somebody to know like okay i really want to stick with this and then they'll stick with it you know and that maybe it could be a 20 minute video and they're, and they're fully into it because that first 10 seconds really drew them in to figure out you know maybe what's what do I want to know about this character? Why did that person crash? Or I think we just got footage in of like a racer, their shoe popped off in the middle of their downhill run. And she like finished the race without her shoe on. It was like flipped on the other side of the pedal. And so you see her come through like the finish line without her shoe on. So we actually showed that first to like draw the viewer in to watch the whole, (laughs) the whole run itself, which is cool. Nice. Yeah. It's a good tip for sure. All right. Let's talk hardware for a second. I know this isn't totally your department, but there's some stuff I'm just really curious about. Um, why not just add a three and a half mil mic jack directly to the camera instead of requiring an adapter? It's a great question. I actually don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, my, my hunch is maybe it's because the camera's waterproof and this helps uh, keep it because you can't like, I'm guessing you can't use that adapter underwater, right? For the mic. So you just have to close everything up. Um, Okay. What, like, just really quick, Tyler, the answer to that would be, and just for your knowledge, it's more like we hear that you're right about the functionality of the GoPro being compromised um, with having the adapter right in there. So with Hero 7, we redesigned all of the mics um, to give better audio. And so when you're doing something like a, a vlog or a studio shoot, um, you may still want that, you know, that external mic adapter. But when you're doing something that requires a GoPro to be an action camera, the redesigned mics are meant to kind of bridge the gap between having it and not having it. Um, so just kind of like for you to know, like the Hero 7 um, kind of has a fully revamped audio system, which I'm happy to give you more information if it's of interest. Cool. Yeah. I, and I'd heard that. I had some friends that up until this one came out were des- dying, you know, they just kept holding on to their Hero 4s because apparently the mics were super good on that one. And then when it yeah. went out waterproof, they got like, I guess, really kind of dense membranes that weren't as good. It, um, and it had like the, um, almost like the the bubble effect where it sounds like you're talking like inside of a chamber. Mm-hmm. And it, the feedback from that was like, okay, we obviously need to address. So again, in addition to like the actual mics, like the dynamic ranges being um, altered a bit and like what's being picked up is higher high, lower lows kind of thing. Um, the membranes on Hero 7 were redesigned so they're a bit thinner and they essentially the way it was described to me is that they mimic the membranes in your ears. So it's like when speaking to underwater shooting or something like that, um, you know, when you, you dunk your head underwater and you come out, the membranes immediately adjust and lift to undo the waterproofness. And so the camera's meant to mimic that science now. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. I'll probably just leave that in the episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> easy. <laughs> Uh, so the other question I have is like image sensor size, you know, like when I'm shooting, I've got a a 6,000 for my 
main camera, but I keep looking at the sevens because it bumps up the sensor size and be able to capture low light. So, you know, the bigger the sensor, obviously, the better it's going to do in more lighting conditions. Is it possible to get a bigger sensor? Because if I look at the hole on the lens, you know, of the GoPro 7, looking into where the light actually enters, it's pretty small. It's kind of like the, you know, the phones, I mean, the cameras on our smartphones. Like, can you get a bigger sensor in there? Or like, is it a space thing? Is it a power consumption, memory, something else? Yeah, I mean... Definitely out of my world as well, <laughs> but but I say like I think just from my camera knowledge and geekiness and to you know I have tons of cameras outside of GoPro as well. Um, I think we pack a lot and you know pack a lot of punch into that little camera itself. Um, I think it, you know it's always something they're looking into just you know how we continue to better cameras how you know what what because you know people are always gonna want more it's. I want more, I want more, I want more. And you can only fit so much in, you know, a tiny space. Um, I don't know if it's something, you know, they're working on further down the line of, you know, making bigger camera or what that may be. Uh, but I know they're always looking, you know, at what's next and how we make, you know, better low light and how we make better audio and anything to make this camera better. They're always trying to figure out and jam into, you know, a smaller format because, people want that, you know, on the go, you know, type of camera and each tool is, you know, a little different, you know, they're all going to do something different. And obviously, you know, like a red, you're going to pay 60 grand for because of the, the dynamic range of it. Um, and having, you know, a bigger sensor and being able to do that. And then, you know, our camera, especially for 400 bucks or 350, I think it is now. I mean, it does an insane amount of processing, and the, the quality of video that comes out of it, you know, people are shocked a lot of times that you show them the footage and they're like, wait, that's with the GoPro? Like, no way that's with the GoPro. Um, I think we even have like people on our Instagram channel that they see photos come from our camera and they they don't believe that it's an actual photo from the GoPro, <laughs> which is really funny. Like, I, I'd say like, you know, it's it's it just shows that, you know, the power, it doesn't have to be something big to, to have that, but, I think yeah, I, it's a little out of my wheelhouse as to as to like how much they can jam into the little camera, but I know they're always looking into you know how we make this thing better and and what options are available. And I think as tech progresses, you know, they're gonna jam more into you know a smaller sensor to make it even better than it is. And it shows up. I think like any tech, you know, it's always gonna get better as time goes on. Okay, what about mounts? What do you guys use most often in terms of like maybe like the best on bike mount, the best on body mount, and then what else? Yeah, I'd say, let's say we can, do you want to go into both like road cycling and? Yeah, um, definitely. Cause I imagine there's some difference in terms of where the best spot on the bike is for the camera. Yeah. So I'd say for mountain bike, um, you know, our, our biggest go-tos and this actually is where HyperSmooth really steps in, um, and ups it from, you know, previous years, like mountain bike in general is just a bumpy ride down obviously in dirt and rocks and and roots um so on camera stuff is or on bike stuff is actually even better now that you have that so you know getting and i'd say this is where it maybe our camera just excels in any aspect and, and when we do look even on story stuff you know how do we how do we find that shot that a big camera like a Sony or a Red is not going to be able to get, and we try to jam our camera into that place because of the durability, because of the hyper smooth 
um, because you have extra stuff that, you know, that just the, the, the size of the camera in general, you just can place it in a lot of places, but, um, you know, there, there's on bike stuff where like the handlebar, we have this like handlebar seat post mount. So placing on the handlebar faced at you, or maybe you have it on the seat post mount and the, some guys following you, you get, you know, both angles, obviously. Um, I'd say our most go-to mounts for mountain bike are probably going to be the chesty mount or your helmet mount. I would prefer usually the chesty only because you're a little bit deeper into the handlebars. Um, yeah, that so creates a pretty good point of view because you can sort of see how people are steering through stuff too. I like it. Um, yeah. I got a question about the chesty. So like I've, I've worn it and I've used it in, Maybe I'm putting the camera in the wrong position, but it, it does seem like the weight of the camera tends to make, want to make the the little platform bounce a little bit. How tight should you have those straps? Um, you you make them as tight as possible. Obviously, you know the bounce is always going to be a factor with Hypersmooth. It takes a lot of that out. Um, but we you know we try to make it as tight and as obviously as comfortable as possible. Like you don't want to be uncomfortable going down that road. And I think that the other one thing that people don't always know is that we flip the camera upside down, actually. So when you're in that, and this is more of like a mounting pro tip that I think people, when when you see, I, I see it all the time when I go up and like ride, you see a kid with a camera on and they have it, you know, flat against their chest and they're walking through the line, maybe at like a mountain bike park. The second they get on a bike, they're, they're you know, they're pointed downhill their chest is pointed at the ground because it's flat on the, you know, it's flat against their chest. So what you need to do is actually flip that camera upside down and tilt the camera out. Almost like getting the riding stance when you're on like flat ground at the bottom, figure out where that like, you know, that angle is going to be where the camera's flat to your handlebars instead. Um, I think that's like one pro tip I would give anyone for riding that I think a lot of people don't see or like maybe people that are first getting into it, they like think, that when they put it flat to their chest, they're going to start capturing it. And then they're like, well, I captured everything on the ground this run. I wonder why, or they get back to their car at the end of the day and don't understand. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say like having it upside down and then kind of tilting it up and out, it's going to look funky when you're standing in line. But the second you get on a bike, the second you're hunched over and like leaned into your actual ride, it's going to capture everything straightforward. And I'd say like, because of the wide angle lens, you typically want to actually tilt it just a little bit more down than you would think because of the way the wide angle, just the wide angle works. Um, there's a lot of like when we, when we tell people if you have it at your face level and you're looking at something, you want to be pointed at somebody's belly button. I think it's like three meters away and that's like, you're more than likely you're going to get, you're going to get the shot like 98% of the time because that's, you know, that's what you're, that's what your eyes are kind of, I think, seeing um, aspect-wise. It just the the angle or the the width of the lens and what it's capturing. That's just a good like go-to as far as um, as far as having something to aim at. And same with like I said on the chesty, like or if you're just even using your hand, there's a lot of times like I point it just slightly up for some reason, um, and I have to remind myself to like almost point it just slightly down because of the wide angle to capture everything. Cool. And that's, I guess that's probably where that 4-3 setting comes in because you're getting a little more up and down. And like you said, you can crop and post because I think most people want to watch 16-9 video now. But cool. Yeah. What, what yeah. about road bikes? In road bikes, I'd say, you know, it's a little slower. So um, it's definitely fun to have almost like a selfie stick 
no, it's really lame to say, but like our three, our three way mount, or we make this little shorty mount that can, you know, you can put on the camera and jam into your back pocket. Um, and where those things are actually kind of cool, they turn into tripods too. So let's say you are maybe going out for a ride for the day and you want to tell a story. Um, you know, you have the ability to put it in your back pocket, pull it out. You kind of can, you know, you can shoot photos and video, um, and have that aspect of like kind of holding it behind you and maybe looking down the road. Um, you could hold out in front of you or pass it between all your buddies and like your group ride. And then it, the fact that, you know, you could throw like, you know, the tripod on and, and ride by it maybe just to get that extra B roll if you're trying to tell a story for the day. Um, it's kind of a cool little like versatile tool. Um, I'd say the other like popular ones would be the handlebar and the seat post for that one as well. Um, the, the pellet, the, the Tour de France stuff, those were the only mounts they would let us run. Um, the seat post one was definitely the most engaging just because you get to see faces and when, when, you know, you have 75 guys bunched in a group in a Peloton behind that camera <laughs> looking at it. And there's a lot of times the guys would like see them and they'd squirt water bottles out of them and they'd tap on the lens. And, you know, that was all this stuff we looked for. And so, you know, seeing, seeing the facial expressions of those guys in the pack talking, chatting, passing food around was always really cool to see. Um, but I think yeah, for the average Joe. I think that, you know, the, the, the three-way or the shorties, just a fun, versatile tool to have because you can take it out and kind of mess around with it and, and move it around. And then if you really want, you know, just to record your ride for the day, um, you know, having that seat post or or the, hand, uh, the handlebar mount is kind of a cool aspect just to show. Um, there's also a mode, too, that kind of like a sidebar is, is time warp, which is kind of fun. Um, what that does is basically take – it's almost like a, a time lapse – speeds it up and stabilizes it um so let's say you have like a three hour ride and you want to show that in like 10 seconds um you know shooting out 15 times or 30 times you can you can show you can have that speed through everything really quickly and kind of show kind of a cool perspective of your ride um especially if it's you're just trying to show maybe your 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 friends on your insta story or something um what you did for the day it's kind of cool to see oh i started in the city and went all the way up to like the woods or the mountains and it shows you know just like a winding road and a very smooth smooth ride essentially yeah actually ask you about that the hyperlapse um i think so when i've plugged my gopro in after doing one it'll show the normal video segments i've done and then it'll show about five thousand photos (laughs) i guess those it uses those photos to create the hyperlapse but so if somebody wants to get a hyperlapse off of the gopro onto say their phone or their computer what's the best way to do that yeah i'd say either through the gopro app um you can pull it directly from there on your phone or yeah on your phone okay um that's typically the quickest way because you're usually in the field when you're looking at the content and then i'd say secondary would be yeah plugging in your sd card loading it up through you know an editor um and pulling it from there and then, yeah, from there, it's, you know, you can load it back to your phone. Because I'm pretty sure it pops out as an MP4 file. So your phone should be able to play it. Um, so you can pull it back onto your phone as well. And are you talking about, like, a GoPro desktop app editor? or Because I use Final Cut Pro, but, like, when I tried yeah. to look at it, it was just showing me thousands of photos. And I really didn't feel like figuring that out. Were, were you shooting in time lapse or time warp? That is a good question. <laughs> Likely you're probably shooting in time lapse, okay. which case photos will come out. Um, so yeah, there's two ways you can get a time lapse out of either of those. So there's like the half second time lapse mode, or you can choose your intervals. 
Um, but there's also the hyperlapse motor time warp. Um, I think that one's like signified by like a little arrow or spaceship looking thing with some stars. Um, and what that will do is actually it's, it's like taking photos, but it's putting it all together in a video format for you and then basically speeding it up and, and, and smoothing it out or stabilizing it. Um, and it should, with that one, just spit out a video file for you. So I'm assuming you probably shot on time-lapse mode, maybe. Um, and if that's the case, then your options would be, I think it's, yeah, Final Cut has like a way to stitch all those together. Um, I think you can go through, there's various different programs. We don't have a, a GoPro desktop app that stitches all those photos together. All right, so that's the pro tip is make sure you have it on hyperlapse and not time-lapse. Yeah, <laughs> time-lapse is great. Though. I mean, you can, you get the you get the same aspect, you just don't get the, the stabilization in the time-lapse itself. And it's taking more photos, I think, in the actual time warp itself. So I'm kind of curious, is you guys used to have a mount that would put two GoPros side by side to create 3D. Is that, is 3D just dead? It seemed like it had a, like a, a moment and then went away. Yeah, I think it was like a sneeze and then <laughs> <laughs> or went away. Right on. Um, off. Yeah, uh, I think 3D, 3D was like a fun thing that tried to catch on, but it never, yeah, never really caught on essentially. Right. What about... Um, I, what's the word for it? I guess 360 degree, like it's not virtual reality, but like the, you have a camera that'll capture everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, you're right. It, it does, it does capture VR virtual reality. And then it, it, you know, our biggest thing with it that people see value in. So it's, it's a camera with, you know, it's a little bigger than a, a regular hero seven. This um, is the fusion, right? This is the fusion, the GoPro fusion and, and has a lens on each side and it's offset just slightly. Um, for I, that's more techie reasons than I actually know. Um, uh, but basically, what it does is it takes this hundred and I think it's over 180 degrees uh, angle on each side, so it's like this dome-looking footage or dome-looking content you get out of it or fisheye, let's say. That's what it looks like. And then what it does is it stitches that content together in this like seamless stitch. And so when you have it actually mounted to a lot of things, you don't see the actual mount itself. It's doing like some voodoo magic on the back end that I don't really understand, but it's really cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, so what I think the the benefit of it is is that because you have 360-degree footage, you aren't essentially missing the shot, and it's actually stabilizing your footage. So you know a traditional footage, let's say for HyperSmooth, on a seven, you're shooting 4K content. When you get that output of that content, it's actually not all the way 4K. It's actually punched in 10% because it's having to you know use a little bit of that space to to stabilize the footage. Um, with Fusion, because it's 360, you're not actually losing any resolution because it has everything to work with to stabilize the footage. Um, and that's just based on the algorithms and software. Like I said, that's beyond my knowledge of how they do it, but whatever they did, it works amazing. Um, but yeah, you're never missing the shot. And then we have this thing called overcapture. Um, and what that does is basically allows you to pick where you're filming. And I think the best way to describe that is if someone were to maybe, let's say like uh, a skater in a bowl, he could basically go out by himself now. He would stick that fusion in the middle of the bowl let's say he skates around the whole bowl or pushes record, skates around the whole bowl, opens that on his GoPro app, and then basically he turns into the filmer at that point. So wherever he's like looking on his phone, he can record that motion on his phone 
turns into like a 2d image at that point um so you can put it on you know youtube or whatever but you're never missing where he's at because he's using his phone to almost like follow himself around the pool uh where it gets interesting is you can use it as almost like a traditional camera too um and this is where we've gotten kind of creative with it or you know tested things too is that we've used it as almost like we put on chest mounts and head mounts and almost used it as like thinking of it from like one angle or one lens in a way um and just using that because you obviously have 360 so you have as much real estate on each side to move around and do whatever and you can take let's say a single run and use a variety of different clips so let's say you put on your head you're with your buddies mountain biking you have a guy in the front guy in the back let's say the dude in the front does a backflip and then maybe the guy behind you does you know a tail up or just like a a, a tabletop or whatever you, you know just bones out on a jump you can basically you know show that first run or show the guy doing the backflip in front of you cut that clip go back to the the guy doing whatever he does behind you and then show that clip as well so you're not actually missing any of the subject if that makes sense or you're not missing the action because you have all aspects that you can cover at that point um or you have your own pov and you just have a little bit wider perspective because you can zoom out or zoom in as much as you want on the post side of things yeah that's uh, pretty rad and then it stabilizes too like the the stabilization in it is is insane because it keeps that horizon level um you actually like there's there's shots that we've done where and people are like oh, how'd you get the shots you know the camera's floating or it looks like it's floating and somebody will go actually around the camera but the camera will stay faced forward and that's just based on like the stabilization because it's keeping that horizon flat and centered and so if someone's doing a backflip it's actually going to like rotate around if you have full stabilization on um and that just keeps like a point centered and then there's like kind of like a half stabilization um or anti-shake i think is what we call it um and what that does is basically just keeps it for like your pov centered so if you go left it's going to look left but it keeps the horizon center straight if that makes sense between the two Hmm. is it how hard is that to edit in post like if you can you drop that in the final cut pro or you know adobe premiere or something and then like how do you yeah. tell it what to focus on so so two ways to do it uh through the gopro app so we have um it'll stitch it in there and then there's the over capture portion of that where you actually push record on there and then you use your phone to kind of like look around or zoom in and out and it'll record those motions and then spit out like that file so like I said, that's where you turn into like your own videographer at that point. Uh, on a more like advanced level of that, you can take it into Premiere. We actually have plugins for that um, called Overcapture, and you can download those through the site as well. I think it's GoPro.com/fusion, and then somewhere near the bottom, um, there should be some some download links for the Fusion Studio, which is where you actually need to stitch the content, and then um, it'll download the plugins for your Premiere as well. And that's where you can get kind of real fancy with it and and use keyframing within Premiere to kind of, um, you know, figure out where you go. And if you don't know, kind of what keyframing does is, you know, you're telling something at point A to be looking here and at point B to be looking here. And then in between all that, the the program does, you know, it, it, it pans that camera to do, you know, to look from point A to point B. Um, so let's say it's like a zoom effect you're trying to do and you're, you're zooming from like way out to way in it'll do you know it'll move the camera for you or move like the motion of the 
the image for you from point A to point B on what you set. So that's where you can get real creative and figuring out kind of where, you know, maybe it's one long raw run, but you're like looking all around and having certain segments, um, you know, point to certain various things. Like I think we did one with Valparaiso or one of the like urban downhill mountain bike runs and they're going through like the streets and, you know, when they go through there, it's, there's a lot of like families that are watching from their windows and, it's like there's a lot of environment and so we had a uh, athlete wear a camera and we like used that point of view or use the fusion to like kind of point out a few of those key items like there was a dog barking at the gate and there was maybe like these kids that were like yeah dude go 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 and like whistles blowing so you'd like almost pan the camera to those aspects as the guy's riding down because you know as a rider you're like hearing those things but maybe you don't like necessarily see them so it's kind of cool that you know you can pan to those and then pan right back to the action all within one raw run without cuts at all. Yeah. That's pretty rad. Yeah. It's like, I'm sitting here thinking of like all the different ways I could use that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, and cool. like the, the one pro tip I'd say on that, like if you do use it, so I don't know if this will convey it in audio as well, but when you mount the fusion, you want it to be, I'm going to get this maybe wrong. Perped, no parallel with the mount itself so let's say the the camera's sitting straight up you want the stick that it's on to be exactly straight below it if you tilt that camera left or right to kind of like hold as like because the the traditional viewer will look at the lens and they'll want to like point it to themselves mm -hmm. but because you're shooting 360 you don't necessarily have to point the lens directly at yourself so you just want to make sure that like that camera lines up straight with the pole it's on and what that will do is actually make that pole disappear essentially with the way it like stitches. And that's where like that voodoo magic comes in that I don't quite understand. But um, yeah, when you mount it to things like helmets or whatever, it almost makes it look like it's like the Mario Kart like cloud guy filming you. And people like freak out. They're like, how, how did you get that? Like, I don't understand. Where's the camera at? And then you kind of like, yeah, once you understand 360 footage a little bit more, um, you know, you have that. And then I think beyond that too, like you said, the virtual reality portion of it, that aspect is fully there. Um, you know, you can throw you can throw that footage in Premiere and export. It's called an echo rectangular is the, the file you get out of it. Um, and that's like the weird warpy one or look really warpy, but basically if you thought of it like it's, you know, if you wrap that around a ball, that's what your footage looks like. Um, obviously flattened out. You know, you can export that file to YouTube. I think Facebook does it too. Um, and then that's where you can like pan around on your own um, and let the viewer kind of do their own panning versus, you know, over capture, you're choosing where the viewer is looking. Um, so we've, you know, we've done like paramotorists in Utah in a VR headset. You sit in like a spinny chair and you throw the headset on and you kind of like look down and they're like floating above canyons and you kind of feel that aspect. Um, because you can look right and left like you're flying in that like you know the paramotorist's seat basically that's rad awesome man nick so thanks so much for your time it was like hopefully everybody learned something at least gets a bigger view of like how to create some good videos and some of the basic camera settings so really appreciate your time man yeah really appreciate it, it was a pleasure talking to you this was a long one, so I'll keep this short. If you guys want to check out the videos we're doing, please hit us up on youtube.com slash bikerumor and hit subscribe because we've got a ton of cool things in the works right now. And of course, some great tech videos that we've done in the past, so check all that out. Huge thanks to GoPro. Of course, 
You can find them on anywhere you go. Just search GoPro and you'll see their channels. If you do have GoPros, check out the links in the post for this podcast because I'm putting a lot of the kind of quick recap bullet point highlights of what Nick said, a lot of the settings and recommended things they do. And I'll put a link to their YouTube channel because they do a lot of really quick, short, easy to see uh, tutorial videos on how to do a lot of what Nick talked about there. And so I hope you enjoyed this. Hit like, hit subscribe on whatever podcast player you're using. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. And if you've got a guest that you'd like us to interview for any reason on the Bike Rumor podcast, leave a comment in uh, one of our posts. Thanks a ton, and we'll see you all next time. That's a wrap on this episode. Tune in next time for another great ride. Be sure to follow at Bike Rumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks, and we will see you next time.